You want to know why I pulled you over? Littering. <laughs> Officer, that, that's not ours. Candy bars. Littering and? Littering and? Uh, and, uh... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and smoking the reefer. Now, some of you may recognize that clip from the 2001 movie Super Troopers, where a group of young men are pulled over while high. I recently saw that movie at an outdoor screening at the Red Rocks Amphitheater just outside Colorado. And uh, I remember watching the movie, I remember the sights, I remember the sounds, and uh, I definitely remember the smells, as hundreds of people around me were enjoying Colorado's newest recreational drug. Marijuana was thick in the air. And I remember immediately following the movie as hundreds of those people got into their cars, turned on their headlights, and slowly drove home. And I remember wondering how many of the people around me, how many of the cars were driven by someone who was legally impaired, whether they had levels of THC above the legal limit, whether they were clinically intoxicated. These are hard questions to answer. And on today's show, I will actually be talking to someone who can provide some of those answers. Rebecca Hartman is co-author of a new study on marijuana, driving, and alcohol. And I look forward to talking to her about that study and some of the implications for driving safety. But before we get to that, I want to mention that Talks Now is undergoing some changes for a while now. Some of you are new listeners. Some of you have been here since the beginning. If you're new listeners, I'd recommend uh, heading back to some of the early episodes on clinical exam and and, uh, bath salts and some of our old favorites. But I wanted to update you on a new development in that while uh, I am still producing the show, I, Matt Zuckerman, we are now jointly uh, produced along with the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, or AACT. Some of you have heard us mention this before. Some of you are members or are intimately familiar with the organization. That's because this is one of the largest clinical toxicology organizations in the country, as well as internationally. And throughout its years in existence, it has been instrumental in the development of clinical and medical toxicology. So we at the show at Talks Now are honored by such an association and look forward to a fruitful partnership. And in that vein, for our first segment, I think I'd like to do a quick recap of our most recent North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, uh, which was a talks meeting that took place in San Francisco. Some of us have been there uh, many times. Some of us are fresh participants in the NACCT, as we call it, or NACT. And so I wanted to get a chance to talk to some of the people at uh, Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Control Center about some of their experiences. And then after that, stay tuned for more about marijuana and driving. I'm Tom Nappy. I'm a first-year fellow. And I'm Michael Marlin. I'm also a first-year fellow. And I'm Chris Hoyt. I'm the fellowship director. Great, yeah. And so you guys all recently attended the NACT conference in San Francisco. Yeah, we did. Did you enjoy the conference? It was a great time. First, first time. First time. Very nice. And it was your... This is my second one. I went last year when I was trying to schmooze my way into toxicology and meet as many people as I could. That was before you realized you don't have to schmooze to get into toxicology. It's usually a raise your hand type thing. Uh, (laughs) And then, Chris, you've been to like 20 of them? I've been, yeah, I've been to. This was my sixth conference I've been to. So, and it was was a great time. Cool. And then, uh, did you guys all do the dinner cruise? We did. Yeah, we did, actually. It was my first time on a boat. Literally? Like a large boat. Like you've been on a little boat, yeah. I've been like, canoe. I've been on, I've been deep sea fishing, but never on a boat where I couldn't see like out. Okay, enclosed. It was wow. fun. I didn't get seasick. That's good. Yeah. Okay. You, I heard. I heard there was a period where everyone was like, "Is the boat going to dock at some point? Are we going to be able to get?" I didn't. I didn't. Are we going to get off the boat? I was having too much fun. Okay. <laughs> he was that, like a little kid. I was say, <laughs> oh my god, it's got windows. That, on that's it. code for uh, there was a bar and I had and I drank. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. <sighs> Maybe more. So, what, did you, any of you guys have favorite moments at NACT? I think I would say my favorite, the whole thing was the pre symposium. I'd have to agree. The pre symposium was extremely well done. I mean, you had like the, the world experts there and they covered, I mean, it was extremely in depth for the, for the two days that we had. So it was, I mean, it was a it was, great primer. And it was not only like 
really, really in depth, but it was also, I think, uh, useful on our intro level as well for us. They touched the surface and they, and then they took it down a few layers as well. So it was useful for the fellows, I think, as much as anyone else. It was a toxinology presymposium. So they went overall, you know, envenomation snakes, scorpions, Anything spiders. That can venom envenomate you. Marine. Or envenom, as they like to say. They can envenom you? Envenom you. Cool. All right. Was there any, any, so is there, isn't everything just in Australia? Isn't that the point? Just don't go to Australia? <laughs> yeah. That was a large occurring theme, yeah. But, but David Worrell did a lot on his, his experiences with, uh, with his, uh, travel to endemic areas like in South America, Southeast Asia, Africa, and the guy's been all over. So it was great. We had a lot of good anecdotal stories and uh, it was very entertaining. Was very well done. And it turns out you're actually fairly safe from any envenomation in New Jersey. <laughs> it's true. Although that's not, that might be the main reason to go to New Jersey. Um, but yes. I always like the classic answer. The difference between something being poisonous and something being venomous, right? Because we tend to throw the word around either way. If you eat it and you'll die, then it's poisonous. If it tries to eat you and you die, then I guess it's venomous. There are poisonous birds, I found out. Really? True. Okay. All right. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, do you know what, which one I should stay away from? No, I can't from? remember. That's fine. <laughs> there was a lot of information. There's a lot of So you're drinking water from a fire hose. <laughs> so, too, so, too much. So two days of venomations and then, okay. I actually like the uh, the pathophysiology of withdrawal. Um, so there was somebody who, a PhD, who actually gave, actually two PhDs, they gave their uh, research. They do research into withdrawal syndromes, and they gave a pretty interesting molecular mechanistic um, talk about the mechanisms of withdrawal. And I thought that, I found that very interesting, because we all know about withdrawal syndromes, but how it, the signal transduction that's involved in it and the pathways was pretty interesting, I thought. Yeah, so uh, so we had molecular mechanisms of tolerance to opioid and ethanol, moderated by our very own Ken and Hurd, and presented by Susan Ingram Osborne, PhD, and Robert Adrian Harris, PhD. And uh, Dr. Osborne talked about the molecular mechanism of tolerance to opioids, which I thought was very interesting. She had um, signal transduction and channel opening and thresholds. It was the kind of thing that was the kind of content where I said, I want to know this. Right. And then, and then uh, Harris did alcohol withdrawal. Yes. Uh, Harris She's did ethanol al- withdrawal. Ethanol withdrawal, yes. That's right. Which, which is I found very interesting, just to understanding those pathways. What I love about these conferences is I'm watching all of these signal transduction pathways for opiates, and I'm like, I want to understand this. I don't totally get it all. And then Lewis Nelson at the end stood up and asked a question, demonstrating that he had been alert and had taken in all of her content and was coming up with like clinically relevant questions about actual opiate withdrawal and, and cross-tolerance and things. So, no, that was fascinating. Yes, it was, absolutely. Those were one of my favorite parts of the conference. There was a phenomenal lecture on athletes using various enhancement drugs. Yeah, I think we I think we, we happen to have an expert on on male enhancement. I'm sorry, I'm sorry on on <laughs> athletic enhancement here. Uh, I believe Dr. Chris Hoyt gave that lecture. I mean, it was groundbreaking. Yes, yeah, so I had a good opportunity to uh, give the lecture on athletic performance enhancement and um, where the future of um, analytical toxicology is in that particular realm. And um, I found doing a lot of the research very fascinating. And so hopefully in the future, we can do a little bit more, work on uh, some of that stuff a little bit more. I'm the chair of the section of sports toxicology, so we will uh, hopefully have more in the future. But that lecture taught me a lot. Uh, preparing for that taught me a lot about um, athletic performance enhancement. And is there a one line? It seems like it's really hard to test for. It's extraordinarily hard to test for and very expensive. But you can't trick Dr. Hoyt. That's right. You can't trick Dr. Hoyt. I think I I like the most out of it is it's not all just blood doping. That's right. It's not all something you just test for the day of the test. That's exactly right. No, that's fantastic. And I think we might have to have you on the show, actually, Chris, talking about in depth some of that. And there was even during the conference, there was a lot of, I felt like there was a subset of social media activism and, and responses at the conference. So I think during your talk, Chris, you said somebody was tweeting, uh, what were they tweeting? Yeah, about? so during my talk, somebody actually tweeted out, where can I find human growth hormone in San Francisco? You know who you are. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Right. That's right. right. And did you respond? No, nobody. I actually did respond that I did not know the answer to that, but I would look into it. Okay. I think that's a Yelp question more than a Twitter <laughs> that's question. Right, that's right. But then also I remember during the critical care, so there was a critical care discussion moderated by Brian Hayes at Farm ER Toxgard. And there was a, a case presentation out of UMass about a six-year-old child that had died from hypernatremia. Oh, yeah. It was a very Sad interesting story. case. I think that the, I mean, first of all, it was a very unfortunate child. And the mother, too, was very unfortunate to have been uh, basically misled by by the internet on how to help her child, which was all she was trying to do. 
turned out that the the reason why the kid became hypernatremic was there was a, a home remedy that she had read on a on a website that involved giving soda giving basically salt water through the through the kid's peg tube as a form of cathartic, giving a like a osmotic diuretic basically to help her remove her bowels. And Under the premise you can't absorb sea salt. Yeah, and that that's what the website I believe yeah. even said was right. you, you can't absorb sea salt through your GI tract, which is totally Totally false, and the kid's sodium was really through the roof, and there was... Yeah, I think it was 204. It was above 200. Yeah, it was above it was. 200. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they came in very sick, and it was it was livestrong.com that had the yes. initial posting. That's correct. Um, um, and uh, and talked about that. It's still there, isn't it? It so, is. It is. I, I researched it. Yeah. It, got, it got taken down. So that's the after? fun thing about after. So, okay, because during, so during, the, during the, right. the, uh, the lecture, it was still no stop. Right. That was kind of one of my favorite parts because I feel like as toxicologists, we see a lot of sick people. We see a lot of cases that tragically sometimes end in tragedy or death and it touches us. However, we tend to take it in in a scientific or a medical context. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I sensed that when they brought up that case, there was a change in the room. There was everyone sort of got a little bit on edge and a little bit outraged. And when it was discussed that the website was still up and everyone at these conferences always has their laptop out, always has Wi-Fi. So really instantly, if you were tracking that page, you probably would have seen like an uptick. And I just sensed uh, some anger. And I remember I tweeted about it at Talks Now, and a lot of other people were tweeting about it. And we're tweeting at Livestrong.com, the Twitter handle. Um, David Yearlink was tweeting also. And I think started to connect it to the Livestrong Foundation associated with Lance Armstrong. And then the foundation tweeted back, that's not us. You want Livestrong.com, we're Livestrong.org which sounds very similar, and I'm fairly certain it's trademarked. And it turns out that the Livestrong.com website gives a host of medical advice, in this case written by a business blogger, and donates a fair share of their profits to the Livestrong Foundation. And I think the UMass group, which does a lot of good tweeting and, and education, mentioned they had tried to directly contact the website and get it taken down and didn't hear a response. Hmm. But within about 24 or 36 hours of the social media outrage at NACT, a lot of toxicologists and pharmacists and people tweeting and some public health people tweeting, the website was taken down. And the I, whole website? Or just no, 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 no. Uh, that would that be nice. Piece. That would be nice. No. Yeah, only that one article about using salt water as a treatment for constipation. Yeah, so that was kind of a successful – I was very yeah. pleased by that. Um, and I don't think that would have happened if there wasn't the social media outcry. And I'm not sure there would have been the social media outcry if it wasn't presented at NASH. That's right. I also thought it was interesting in that uh, particular presentation that one thing I learned – well, not that I learned, but we knew this physiologically – was that if you check a urine for lights – you can determine whether or not it's exogenous sodium that's being given versus just volume contraction and hypernutremia from that by tracking the urine sodium. But somebody mentioned in the crowd a simple means of determining because the question was, was a kid volume contracted and just happened to have hypernatremia? Or was this actually really just because the question was, can you absorb the sea salt? So the question was, was this volume contraction and then hypernatremia as a result of that? Or was it exogenous salt being given in and absorbed? And contributing to the hypernatremia. And it was very interesting that somebody mentioned, well, just check the urine sodium. Because if the kidneys are spilling sodium, then it's more likely that it is an exogenous absorption of sodium. And I thought that that was a very poignant point. And we can all take that because there's other cases out there where people are taking sodium bicarbonate, for example, and other things. And so that, I think that was a poignant moment in that case. Whereas if the, if the person is just volume contracted and is holding on to sodium, then the kidneys should not be spilling sodium. Yes. And thus the urine should be relatively hyponatremic or, exactly or have low right. sodium. In that's it. Yeah. exactly right. And hypotonic. Right. Relatively hypotonic. So that's exactly right, man. Yes. One of the few times when emergency physician is interested in checking the urine lights. <laughs> that's exactly right. And there, I like that case, too, because they talked about how initially I think that it was a wide complex tachycardia. They tried to cardiovert the patient and failed a few times and then gave sodium bicarb to try and narrow it, which made me feel good whenever smart, smart people make not make mistakes, but do things that then, you know, you treat and talks, you reassess, it doesn't work, you try something else. Because there's a lot of smart people in toxicology, and I'm not always the smartest. But yeah, did you guys... It just you tells guys, you how important the history is sometimes, you know. And I know in that, in that situation, it wasn't available, but again, so much of what we do, how important the history is. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed that case, and I really enjoyed the sort of response to it, although a tragic case and a tragic outcome, and not the first time, realistically. Um, hypernatremic death from exogenous salt administration has been documented. Yeah, we, we actually had one in uh, one of our uh, our national case conferences back two months ago, I believe, where sodium chloride was given as a, a medic. 
Yeah. Any, any other things you enjoyed about the conference in terms of posters or places, things? Actually, the like? posters are all very, very interesting. It's nice to see what everyone's doing around the country when you have a whole ton of hundreds of them all, you know, lined up for you to see. Gives you some good ideas. And I, I like the posters a lot for that reason. And you can familiarize yourself with a lot of the interest groups, which I think now are going to be termed sections. Sections. Yeah, um, that's right. Sections. You know, there's one for everyone. So it's, it's really interesting to get start to get involved with that and see all the opportunities within there's each section. Of, there's a lot of opportunities with, with, the, with those sections, especially with the research funding, too, that they were telling us all about. And they're just – seems like they're, they're really, really itching for some good people, good projects to invest in. I think that is definitely true. I think there's don't definitely... Don't tell anybody. No, tell, no, no, no. no but I, it, 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 you go to these conferences and you just get energized about all the possible opportunities and all the things. I find that, like, you just come home with all these ideas and things you want to do. That's right. Oh, what about you, Chris? Were you, did you enjoy the conference? Were you bored by your umpteenth conference? No, I, I enjoyed the conference very much. I thought it was... Um, it's always good to go to these conferences because you... There's always something that you pick up that you did not know, um, that you learn from somebody else. So... I really like going to uh, going to these conferences no matter what. I was busier this time than I had been ever before at a conference like this, meetings-wise. But um, all the stuff I got to go to, I felt like I was learning new things, and that's always a good thing. Cool. It's also nice to see old friends, too. You know, yeah, know there's people from, from my residency that are toxicology now. It's nice to see them. There are a couple that are in toxicology that didn't make it this time that I, you know, I was looking forward to seeing them at maybe the next meeting. But you always get to see, get to see people that you uh, haven't seen in a while, too. And make new friends. No, that's true. I'm always shocked by how open some of the biggest names are to just walk in. I mean, just walk up and say hi. Gold Frank won uh, the, I think it was the Lifetime Achievement Award, and he just made me feel terrible. I always hate it when he talks because I feel like a terrible human being because he is such a good, good, good human being and and a physician and a toxicologist. Barry Rumack walked walked up to me and said hello, <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, I got a picture to prove it. You got a selfie. Oh, that's cute. With Barry Rumack. With Barry, the Rumack selfie. Is that on Facebook or Twitter or is that just hiding on your phone? This is just on my phone. It's actually on a on a 10 by 10 poster at his house. <laughs> I was going to say. In his acetaminophen uh, shrine. Very good. <laughs> Brandon yeah. Mahogany. The one thing that I think that we need to do to explore a little bit more toxicologically is, is technology. And I don't mean just mm. social media. I'm talking about using health gadgets in order to push the care of toxicology along. And I thought there was one interesting thing during the critical care support about using a monitor for tissue lactate as a means yeah. to determine uh, uh, resuscitation. Now, to be fair, by some people who are more seasoned who've been practicing for a while, they got a little pushback because the argument was, well, you should be able to use other factors like physical exam right. findings yeah. and things and vital signs in order to determine resuscitation. But uh, I can see maybe in the future, um, especially some toxins where you don't have immediate changes in physical exam findings, especially in young people where you don't get that immediate change, it might be nice to have another device such as that to kind of follow resuscitation along. And I thought that was pretty cool. No, I, I definitely agree. I thought, yeah, that was an interesting discussion. Because the one is like, you know, you ask how many opinions, you ask a toxicologist a question or three toxicologists a question to get like four answers. <laughs> and so with that, I really do think it was new, new technology to monitor, monitor tissue perfusion. Right. And yes, you can look at urine output and you can look at cap refill and you can look at mentation and end organ effects. But at the end of the day, we, we tend to be numerically motivated. Right. And it's really hard in somebody whose numbers look great to do more when like their numbers look good. The flip side to that is somebody's numbers can be crap, mm-hmm. yeah, they're but they're right. mentating and they're making urine. And I think in this case, they talked about how there was a period where I think it was a sick calcium channel blocker That's what um, they and they were example, watching yeah. their, their blood pressures. And at one point the blood pressure like tanked and kind of freaked everyone out, but the tissue perfusion was maintained was mm-hmm. and they used that in concert with their physical exam and other things to say, okay, this is not an indication to change therapy. We should hold the course. I think so much in toxicology is knowing when to hold the course. And so realistically, having extra information about tissue perfusion, I think we're going to be seeing more of that. I love the posters too. And I have to say with every poster, it's like a, it's either a hmm or like a chuckle. Like, a, <laughs> yeah. like, like there was one that was like met hemoglobinemia from a vaginal or numbing ointment that had, uh, I think that's important for women to know about though. What? Oh, so, so your public message campaign, you're like, hi, nice to meet you. Have you? Do you apply anesthetic to your vagina? Because if you do, you, you are at risk for many women. I mean, it might that. change practice. <laughs> you might screen women in a, in a different way and advise different uh, What kind of female screening are you doing in the emergency department? <laughs> anyway, so, no, but there was that poster. Um, 
There were uh, – wait, did you guys have posters? There was a groundbreaking poster on a – Oh, God. Serotonin syndrome and a novel agent by, uh, by Dr. Thomas Nappy. <laughs> yeah, so what was your poster? Groundbreaking. <laughs> I had it. No, I had a poster. Um, One of a kind. With a colleague of mine from uh, residency, Ryan, Ryan Sermitis, uh he and I put together a poster for um, – it was a serotonin syndrome from Skalaxin, basically, from Muscle Relaxer. And who, who and it was did, therapeutic doses of Skalaxin, actually, but the guy had liver failure, so he wasn't clearing it. And, you're so modest. You're, like, totally minimizing the contribution to the medical literature that you have put forth with that poster. It's no vaginal cream-induced methemoglobinemia, but it was... No, well, that because that's a serious poster. I mean, you're... And then, did you stand in front of your poster? And by the way... I did. The proper yeah. name is Metaxalon. You're a toxicologist. <laughs> you're a medical toxicologist, now doctor. Sorry. I wrote, I wrote the paper. <laughs> <laughs> He is, he is the world's the expert on, 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 on serotonin. Yeah, on metaxalon induced serotonin For the syndrome. <laughs> but did you do the standing in front of your poster? Or? I did. I stood over there, yeah. Did anyone come up to What's it like to stand in front of a poster? Well, it was kind of interesting because apparently in, in, um, in Canada, they don't have metaxalon. <laughs> so it, all of the folks from so Canada. You're, you're, so everyone that just kind of looked at your poster went, huh, and just walked by you, you were in your bathroom like Canadian. Probably no, Canadian. no, the Canadians <laughs> came up. The Canadians were very fascinated. They were like, what is this drug? What are you guys using it for? But no, other than that, we, you know, people did come up and they talk about it. And, you know, they, some people are interested. Some people do the, the old, huh, you know. I think you walked by and went, huh, and then just kept walking. I'm taking it all in. <laughs> I'm usually thinking about where I want to go for lunch, honestly. That's right. Me too. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, this was in the financial district. So there weren't a ton of restaurants right around but uh, so you poster, you got that. You got the hanging at home next to your next to your picture of Rumac, um, and then uh, yeah. Any other posters? Anyone? There's. I, I find myself taking pictures, and I find there's a lot of people now who are like are doing little like poster selfies or poster pictures. But yeah, we we did a poster. Uh, I had a poster back from my institution back in Mississippi, University of Mississippi. Uh, we looked at uh, the ability for uh, physicians, nurses, uh, medical personnel to distinguish between cotton mouths. And uh, Copperheads. I love that poster. That was a fantastic poster. And uh, so our conclusion was they cannot. It wasn't like 58%. 63 versus 65%. So 2% better. Right. So if somebody comes in and says, I know exactly what snake bit me. And no, you uh, don't. No, they don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Go with the other one. Yeah. No, that's good. That was good. And did you stand in front of your poster? No? I did. Yeah. Any comments or questions? Or- uh not really. I mean, it's just kind of more of like a, oh, wow. I didn't realize we were so bad at it. They weren't terribly interested. Did the, did the Canadians say anything? Like, what are these snakes? We no, don't have these no, snakes. No, we're, we're still trying to figure out Canada's geography from our BTG calls. <laughs> okay. Very good. It's confusing. All right. No, so yeah, we talked about the posters. We talked about some of the great presentations and awards and recognition. And it's just a great way to see people that, you know, that you, you meet there and you have a few drinks and you find yourself arm in arm with big names in toxicology. Where's next year's? We'll see Boston. Boston. Yeah, it's in Boston. Uh, next next year's in Boston. Boston. Back. You get to go. You get to see all yeah, your. You friends. get to go back to your stopping grounds. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my old Boston <laughs> stopping grounds. That's right. Um, no, that'll be fun. That'll be good. Um, When's it going to be in New Jersey? Never. <laughs> yeah, really, never. never. I don't know. Like, maybe you could get. You should talk to Chris Christie about petitioning ACT and all <laughs> the affiliated groups to uh, to come to New Jersey, land of toxicity. Yeah. yeah. What would the, what would the pre symposium be on? Like landfills, environmental toxins. Yeah, toxicity from hair ointment. No. Um, yeah. yeah. So no, uh, I really enjoyed it. It's a great it's a great opportunity. Anyone who's ever interested in toxicology, you don't really have to be a toxicologist to go. Although you might enjoy it a little, a little more if you are. But anyone, and there's just a great mixing of people from different geographies, countries, different levels, and I enjoy it every year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to next year in Baston. Actually, I think they're talking about maybe a social event at Fenway. I'm not sure. Hmm. But if you have any ideas for social events for that next year. That would be pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I would go to that. Absolutely, yeah. I would go to that for sure. It might be a Yankees-Red uh, Sox game, actually, which would be fun to watch. That would be fun. And that concludes our first segment. I want to remind listeners that they can email us at TalksNow at TalksNow.org or tweet at us at TalksNow, T-O-X-N-O-W, or drop a line at our Facebook page. And now, as promised, we will talk about marijuana, drivers, and alcohol with Dr. Rebecca Hartman. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Matt Zuckerman. With me today is Rebecca Hartman, lead researcher on a recent article that just came out in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence entitled Cannabis Effects on Driving Lateral Control with and without alcohol. I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great. So uh, for people that aren't familiar with the article, could could you just explain the article a little? So this was a study that was a massive collaborative effort by the University of Iowa and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, as well as the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So it seems like the purpose of the article is to look at the effects on um, cannabis and then also alcohol on driving. And that seems like it would be something that's hard to study. So so, so how, how do we generally study those effects? Well, so there's a couple of different ways. Some of them include epidemiological research, which basically means crash risk studies. And those are designed to kind of associate crash risk or driver culpability for the crash with exposure to the drug of interest. In this case, it would be cannabis. But you have to consider a lot of different factors with that. For example, are there any other drugs on board? Ideally, to best answer that question, you would only want cannabis on board. Also, the measure of exposure of the drug, you know, blood and urine have very different windows of detection and urine is is not generally associated with impairment, whereas blood might be. But if you want to measure it more directly, you can either use laboratory studies to look at psychomotor coordination or neurocognitive tasks, most typically critical tracking and divided attention. Critical tracking is basically a means of assessing people's ability to keep a cursor that's varying in position within a certain space. So they have a joystick and there's a cursor on the screen that starts to move back and forth and they have to use a joystick to compensate for that motion. And as the task progresses, it gets harder and harder to compensate for the motion of the cursor until eventually it becomes impossible and the point at which that happens is sort of the basis of that measure. Okay, so that's it's kind of like a video game that you could see how it would be related to driving, but is is far removed from actually sitting behind the wheel. Right, but this is a validated predictor of driving performance. Divided attention is also very important because driving is a very complex task that requires attention to a lot of different things simultaneously. And people's ability to maintain performance while dividing their attention is critical to their ability to drive. And so critical tracking and divided attention are two of the most robust and validated predictors of driving performance. But like you said, they're not having someone sit behind a wheel and try to drive. And that was the focus of our research. So this is where where the vehicle comes in. And it was a real privilege to work with this incredible piece of technology because it's arguably the world's most advanced simulator. And I've had the opportunity to drive in it myself, and it's incredibly realistic. You can see fully 360 degrees around you, and there's an entire car inside this little self-contained dome. And basically, it can, based on the driving environment and the driver inputs, it can produce feelings of acceleration and deceleration and turning and even pitch, roll, and yaw. And you can even feel it when you're on gravel. So it's incredibly realistic. It's got sounds like the Doppler effect. So it's a very, very immersive driving environment. And it's an entire actual car in there. So... Cool. And so this is at the um, National Advanced Driving Simulator in Iowa City. Yes, that's correct, at the University of Iowa. And it seems like this is important research. I mean, you mentioned in the paper that I think in the paper you said about 12% of weekend nighttime drivers test positive for THC. And just anecdotally, working in an emergency department, there are plenty of people that are under various influences, be it alcohol or marijuana or other things, when they're driving. And in the past, it was a very easy answer 
if you were uh, positive for THC, if you were under the influence of marijuana, that in all forms is illegal. And there's there's a changing landscape, and there's changing legislation, and there's medical marijuana, and Colorado, where I work, there's recreational marijuana. So it seems like rather than 20 years ago, there's all these new questions that are prompting research. That's very true. And there's a lot of debate about what's appropriate legislation now in terms of measuring cannabis exposure, especially in this changing legislative landscape. Yeah. And so the paper kind of talks about how traditionally, oftentimes, the way that this is regulated is with per se laws. It seems like whenever you talk about the law, you get random Latin phrases. A good example is alcohol, because we all know that alcohol, a 0.08 in this country is illegal everywhere. And basically, the point of a per se law is to say that if a certain concentration of a drug is present, regardless of the burden of proving impairment, that automatically results in, you know, a person's guilt basically in court. And an assumption of impairment regardless of other evidence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. If you've got this much on board, it doesn't matter if you can say your alphabet backwards or do a triple somersault. Just having that on board, you are considered impaired. And yeah, alcohol is a great example because we've had those for years. And it seems like in jurisdictions that have legalized marijuana or increased its availability via medical means or other things, they've tried to establish laws to define impairment. And the options there, I guess, are based on physical exam or driving. But the other option, which is something that we're very familiar with, is just another per se law that sets levels of THC that are considered to be automatic indicators of impairment. Right. Again, for the purposes of the law, it makes it easier for people to prosecute if they can just have that per se without needing to prove in court that someone was impaired by whatever indication. Okay, so you you have this very, very advanced driving simulator in Iowa City. So the next step, it seems like, is to get a bunch of people who are willing to be exposed to THC and alcohol. Right. And so we recruited in several different ways. The National Advanced Driving Simulator has a database of participants that they try to contact. And there's advertisements that go out to various venues. And we recruit occasional smokers. And they have to be current drinkers as well, but within certain criteria that we've set ahead of time. Yeah, it seemed like it was it was really good. So you had people that might smoke a few times within a few months, but didn't smoke more than a few times a week. So you're getting the occasional user who it's not going to be their first time smoking or being exposed to it. They're not going to get shocked by the effects. That being said, you're not getting the person that uses absolutely every single day because, I mean, that's its own separate argument or discussion in terms of looking at chronic users versus occasional users. And then with alcohol, the same thing. You don't want to have somebody have their first drink in a driving simulator. But you also don't want to recruit a chronic daily alcoholic or somebody. It looked like you were excluding people who might be on medications that might interfere with it or or, um, people who uh, couldn't use the simulator appropriately. So kind of a standard study design. Exactly. The other point is, ethically, we can't administer a substance to a naive user. It has to be to someone who would ordinarily. It's an IRB thing. Right. You can't can't increase somebody's risk. Yeah, we can't expose them to greater risk than they'd expose themselves to. No, and I think that's actually a great thing to say because it points out how studying THC and alcohol is very different than studying, you know, Tylenol. And there are um, harm concerns that come into play. And so that's actually a real barrier and issue is that you're, you're having to find people that would already be users. And thus, by administering the agent, you're not increasing their risk of addiction or harm or things like that. And yeah, that's it's it's um, tricky. Right. And so, again, ethically, we can't administer these drugs to people who wouldn't use them within the same kind of degree that we're administering ourselves. Okay. And the study is really interesting because I like that you actually have fairly controlled dose administration, but you you back it up with levels, both. It looked like you looked at saliva and blood, but you didn't have people sort of rolling joints in, in the simulator. What? How, how did you do it? Well, so, of course, we can't it has to be a controlled administration study. You know, everything is as consistent as as we can make it. And actually, one of the interesting challenges that we faced when designing this study is that the entire University of Iowa campus 
is non-smoking. And so we had <laughs> to find an alternative to smoking. And that's how we ended up with the vaporizer. And so exactly half a gram of bulk cannabis was weighed out into our vaporizer and vaporized into this balloon. And the participants were able to inhale ad libitum, it means kind of at will or as they would. There was no enforced breathing pace or controlled inhalation procedure. And so that actually creates another interesting situation where it's not it's not so much about the vaporized dose anymore. So we had a twofold dose difference between our low and our high cannabis. But what we found is that because we allowed participants to inhale ad limitum or at will, the dose that was administered was not necessarily reflective of what we saw. There was a real blurring and about half of our participants showed very distinct evidence of what we call self-titration, where they actually ended up with similar or even greater concentrations after the low than the high dose. Because it's an inhalation route, there's rapid delivery to the brain and people can adjust how they're inhaling you know, as they feel effects. And so... Yeah, so I think it's, you have that in figure three where you've, you've actually graphed the blood THC levels in groups that had a high concentrated exposure versus a lower concentration exposure. And you would assume that the higher concentration exposures would end up with higher levels, but there's actually incredible overlap in all of the groups. And I guess the biggest theory behind that, yeah, makes sense is self-titration. Just like hopefully if somebody's having a shot of vodka, they might drink less than if they're having a dilute beer if they're trying to get to a particular level. And and it's interesting because that's, I mean, that wasn't instructed to participants. They just did that on their own. Right. And again, we didn't have any kind of paced inhalation procedure. So there was nothing beyond the way participants chose to inhale. The interesting thing about the study is, though, you didn't just look at THC. You also, it looks like, looked at um, administrations of alcohol. That's correct. And it was very simultaneous. So we administered alcohol calculated to produce approximately a 0.065 peak breath alcohol concentration. And the idea behind that was that because participants were going to be driving half an hour after the start of cannabis inhalation, we were aiming for about a 0.05 breath alcohol concentration while they were driving. And then you, you had different groups, and it looked like everyone here was kind of like their own control, because it seemed like everyone did all, all the iterations. Precisely. So we used a within-subject design, and participants actually came back for six different sessions. There was the placebo, the low, and the high dose of cannabis, and all three of those occurred with or without the low dose of alcohol. And so our completer participants actually came back over six sessions and served as their own controls, as you say. Okay. And um, and one tiny thing. So I guess the one thing with this is, did you notice any trend with further testing? So like on their sixth time, were they better at the driving simulator course than on their first time? We actually designed the study to kind of prevent practice effects as much as we could by having the same events in the drives, but the events were varied within the different drive segments. The order of events were varied so that by the sixth session, participants wouldn't be able to predict exactly when a certain thing would happen. Okay. So that makes sense. Okay. So, so everyone was doing their own controls. And before you went into the study, I'm sure you had some hypothesis based on current literature. Yes. Well, we hypothesized that alcohol and cannabis would both impair driving and that the combination would be synergistic rather than just additive because previous research seems to indicate that when cannabis and alcohol were combined, effects were greater or more likely to be observed than with either drug alone. So additive basically means if alcohol has this effect and cannabis has this effect, the effect of combining the two would be exactly sort of the sum of the alcohol effect plus the cannabis effect. Whereas a synergistic drug-drug interaction produces an effect that's actually greater than the sum of what the individual compounds alone would produce. 
Okay, yeah, and I think that's that's really an important concept in public health research in general. You'll see that in in cancer research, where one thing will be carcinogenic, something else will be carcinogenic. But let's say something is a sun sensitizer, plus the effect of exposure to sun and the resulting cancer risk is much higher than you would expect just by summing their individual risks. And and with substances, I think that's a great concern, also, especially if they can affect different aspects of driving or different compensatory mechanisms that you might normally use. And so your theory initially was that the effects would be synergistic. That's correct. Um, what we found in this paper, this first paper that we just published, is the effects on lateral control. So that's basically the ability to control side-to-side movement in different ways. And cannabis affected lane weaving, and so did alcohol. And the effect of combining them was not synergistic, but additive in this particular measure. Okay. Yeah. So you looked at, you looked at sort of like their lateral control standard deviation. You looked uh, at leaving the lane. Is there anything else you looked at? Lateral acceleration. So basically you could think of it as sort of the speed of weaving. And these were concentrations during driving. You know, it's, it's important to point that out because concentrations can change rapidly in the blood, particularly for THC. Soon after inhalation, concentrations are already dropping very rapidly. So we wanted to measure these effects based on concentrations that were during driving. And so those were concentrations that were modeled based on both pre-drive and post-driving concentrations. And we actually individually modeled people's THC concentrations throughout the drive. And what we found was that based on the models that we produced, 8.2 micrograms per liter of THC in the blood produced similar SDLP to what a 0.05 breath alcohol concentration produced. And 13.1 micrograms per liter THC in the blood produced similar SDLP to 0.08 breath alcohol concentration. Okay. And as you sort of bring up, one of the reasons you use 0.8 is because that's sort of the standard in a lot of places for the per se laws for alcohol. Right. And 0.05 is actually fairly common Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world. They're both considered impaired driving, or they're both, like I said, common per se laws. No, absolutely. And, and, and it's important to realize and, and understand, too, that these are legal definitions, at least where those are set, not necessarily medical definitions. The per se laws applying to someone who's 20 years old generally say that anything above zero is evidence of impairment. Right. I, I, like you said, it's their legal definitions. Yeah. Was that surprising or what did you think about those levels? Not especially, given the fact that participants had inhaled the cannabis half an hour prior to entering the simulator. And so what you have to remember is the concentration versus time curve for blood THC. As soon as participants start to inhale, the THC concentration increases dramatically. And it actually reaches its peak prior to the end of inhalation. And then it decreases very, very rapidly in the first hour after inhalation particularly as THC is rapidly distributed to highly perfused tissues. And then after that, it more slowly decreases. Because our driving simulation occurred beginning half an hour after the start of inhalation and was all within an hour and a half after inhalation, we were still within that time period where cannabis concentrations are often decreasing very, very rapidly. And so the fact that they were that high is because we had just administered the cannabis. But the thing that we have to remember is that when blood is collected at the site of a traffic incident or a crash or a DUI stop, there's often a collection delay that can be anywhere from 90 minutes to sometimes as many as four hours after the incident took place. And because of that, the concentrations that are measured in the laboratory may be substantially different to those that were present at the time of the incident, particularly if someone had smoked recently. 
Okay, no, that's that's really that's an excellent point, and that's really a difficult thing with all kind of I guess forensic toxicology is the real question is always what was the amount of substance in the person at the time of the event, but realistically most people are not driving with an IV in, and so there's always a question as to when was the sample collection time, what was the delay, and then also well, I think a lot of laymen just assume oh well you can just multiply by a factor to figure out what was going on at that time, but depending on where people are are in their absorption, distribution, and elimination phase, you're going to get different pharmacokinetics. Absolutely. And it's also different based on frequency of use. You know, there's a lot of different factors that go into the concentration or the pharmacokinetic profile of any individual, and they vary considerably. And so, like you said, it you can't multiply it by some factor or look at that number and be able to say exactly what the concentration was at the time of the incident. Right. But you can say that given that this sampling in this particular study, one of the robustness and the strengths of it was that things were actually done sort of real time instantly and that in real life, there is always a delay, be it minutes or longer, between the event and the sampling, between the police being called and people being on scene and there being a concern and someone who can do phlebotomy. There's always a delay that the levels that we see in actual incidents are going to be less than the levels that you'll see at time point zero during the incident. Usually. I just like to point out that infrequent users there's a heavy body burden of THC because it's a very lipophilic drug and it's stored in the fatty tissue and slowly re-released back into circulation. THC will actually fluctuate in the blood. And if this happens to be a chronic frequent smoker that is being tested, it may be that the THC wasn't higher at the time of the incident. Because again, it can fluctuate, but it tends to be Right. I mean, and redistribution from sort of body stores can lead to prolonged sort of positive levels, and there's going to be some fluctuation. Although, I mean, and, and this is this is kind of a separate issue, but the redistribution generally doesn't result in levels similar to peak levels during acute inhalation, does it? Precisely. No. Okay. Right. That's correct. Okay. And actually, and that's also one of the reasons why you're bringing up a great stumbling block in this type of research in this arena is there's realistically, there's a, there's a world of difference between the chronic user who smokes every day, multiple times a day, and is likely to have a great body burden. These levels are going to be very, very different than in this study who you study, who are the occasional acute users who in between using should not have a significant body deposition of THC. In, in this study, you, all, you looked at blood, but you also looked at oral secretion. Oral fluid, yes. It seems like there was, I mean, oral fluid is, is more convenient, but it seems like there can be drawbacks. Right. So there's a lot of advantages to oral fluid because it's non-invasive and it can be collected in real time. And observed collection means that it's not likely to be adulterated. It basically prevents adulteration. There's actually on-site screening devices that are becoming more and more prevalent that allow people to evaluate exposure to drugs right at the roadside. That can be a helpful tool, but it's just more difficult to directly infer effects from oral fluid concentrations of THC because THC enters oral fluid primarily through contamination of the oral mucosa when people inhale, and it has quite high variability, even relative to blood. One tiny thing. Was there any attempt to assess individuals' self-assessment of impairment? Like, did people have a sense as to whether or not they were impaired? I know in prior alcohol research, they've done that, and they found that under the influence of alcohol, people tend to under-assess their impairment. You're right. It's been shown that alcohol tends to lead people to underestimate their impairment and engage in more risky driving behavior. One of the more consistent findings in previous cannabis research is that there appears to be a bit more awareness of potential impairment and attempt to compensate. One of the ways that they do that in previous research is by decreasing their speed. And that's one of the effects that we will be measuring in future papers to see if that holds true in our study as well. Okay, that that should be interesting. Yeah, This is the classic case where you see a car going 15 miles an hour in a 50-mile zone, and you're like, okay, or in the, the you know, <laughs> something, something is going on. You think you're covering for yourself, but it's quite obvious that something is different about that car. 
So that'll right. be and interesting. And it's tough to to be able to say that they could compensate for every possible aspect of impairment, even if they are driving slower there might be other things that they can't do as well. It's just like when grandma's going 15 miles an hour in a 50 year so it might cause problems, but hopefully grandma isn't under the influence. And uh, so I think we've, we've done a great job of sort of talking about kind of the current state, talked about the research design and the findings that you have. What's next? Well, we've got a bunch more variables that we have to look at from our study. You still have the driving simulator. I assume you still have some THC around, so I'm sure that more studies are coming. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and certainly there's a lot more results of this study that are forthcoming. So that's really exciting for us. Yeah, it's a fascinating study. I found it really interesting, and I think it really adds something to the field and has some real-world applications in terms of us better understanding the effects of THC on driving and the effects of alcohol on driving. And I especially really like that you looked at the combined effects because I think that that's a real-world scenario that we see again and again. Absolutely. It's the most commonly detected combination in drivers. Of course, you can never look at every drug-drug interaction because there's just too many of them. But the reality is this is a very, very common co-occurrence that happens in the real world. And it's really important that we understand how these effects work together as well as independently. No, absolutely. Um, people must love it when you tell them what you do. And, uh, and do you want to you throw a shout out for any of your co-authors or anything? Absolutely. We could not have done this without the incredible efforts of so many people. Uh, my co-authors, Timothy Brown, Gary Milovitz, Andrew Spurgeon, uh, Russell Pierce, David Gorelick, Gary Gaffney, and of course, my PI, Dr. Marilyn Hustis. And I'd also like to acknowledge Dr. Sturry Smither and Richard Compton, uh, from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration for their invaluable contributions as well. Well, I, um, I, I really appreciated you taking the time to talk to us today about this article. And like I said, I think it really adds something to the um, area. And I, I look forward to seeing a, a future research from your group in this arena. Thanks again, Rebecca Hartman. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Talks Now is produced by Matt Zuckerman with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at talksnow at talksnow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W or via our Facebook page or tweet us at Talks Now. Talks Now.